This is an ABC podcast. Had I grown up in a free country, I probably would not have become a scientist. It's not because I'm not interested in science. I've always been intrigued by these most fundamental questions of nature,、mm-hmm. but I've also been intrigued by the governance of human beings. And but at a very young age, growing up in China, I realized all the other career paths. I aspire to. They were not possible because of the political conditions in China. I couldn't be a journalist without a free press, a politician without democratic elections, or a lawyer without the rule of law. And science became the only profession within my interests, and that is accessible to me that I could pursue without compromise. The personal is getting political on science friction today. Welcome to the show. I'm Natasha Mitchell with a passionate story of the pursuit of freedom and of science and human rights. Particle physicist Dr. Yang Yang Chang searches for dark matter. And actually, for my graduation gift, I got some T-shirts with Darth Vader printed on them, because <laughs> my colleagues were joking that I went to the dark side. She's a postdoctoral research associate at Cornell University, and part of the team using the Large Hadron Collider to study the most fundamental matter of the universe. Basically, what we are doing in our collider experiments is to recreate some of the conditions at the very beginning of the creation of our whole universe, and I just find that. Whole idea, that concept of it, absolutely fascinating. On the physics side, I do searches for dark matter, and dark matter is this kind of mysterious type of matter that is really not dark but transparent in the sense that we cannot see them, but we can project its existence by measuring these astrophysical、uh, phenomena. And it's about five to six times that of. Ordinary matter, what makes up the universe as we see and feel it,、mm. and my work has been searching for these different types of dark matter. But Yang Yang Chang doesn't just think deeply about the dark matter and the dark forces that shape our universe. She's also concerned with the dark forces that shape human behaviour, and that's what we're talking about together today. Because for Yang Yang, science became a path to freedom. As a child born in 1990, just months after the Tiananmen Square massacre, and recently she's found a potent voice, her own, on history, on human rights. And the exploitation of science as an instrument for political oppression. You lived your first 19 years in China. You grew up in China before、yes. m- moving to America to to do your graduate studies. Take us back to your earliest years. So I grew up in a medium-sized city, which is like a typical second or third-tier city in China,、uh, called Hefei, in Anhui Province. It's Somewhat like four or five hours west of Shanghai and along the Yangtze River,、um, but I also grew up on a campus of one of the most elite universities in China, University of Science and Technology of China, or USTC. That institution has been called the Caltech of China, an extraordinary institution, one with an extraordinary. Political history as well, but it's also an institution that your father was a professor in science and engineering at, wasn't it? 
yes, my father、um, was a student in in his home、um, home province, and then he came to the University of Science and Technology of China in Hefei, Anhui, for his PhD in the late 1980s, and later stayed at the university as a professor. And so that's how I was born and raised on that campus and lived there for the first 19 years of my life. Yes, very much a, a campus woven into your soul, and also into the the soul, if you like, of、uh, the development of modern science in China.、Uh, sadly, you lost your your dad when he was just 36. He died in his sleep. What impact did that loss? Have on your family, you and your mother. You were an only child under China's one-child policy. So I was ten years old when my、uh, dad died, very suddenly and very unexpectedly. And I think it was an it was an interesting age, because I was old enough to be completely aware, but too young to understand what role a father actually plays in、um, a person's upbringing,、mm-hmm. and. Because it's been in the news that Gloria Vanderbilt just passed away. That's the famous fashion designer, artist, and author Gloria Vanderbilt, mother of the CNN news anchor and journalist Anderson Cooper, who put together the most extraordinary and profound obituary for her last week. You can catch it on YouTube. And she and her son Anderson Cooper, they've co-written this book, and there is this line, because both of them lost their fathers when they were ten years old. They said, "A fatherless girl sees everything as possible and nothing safe." And of course, I'm not a Vanderbilt, and there, there's nothing particularly common in our upbringing. But that common, that shared language of loss is something I instinctively understood、mm-hmm. when I read that. I think one thing that has really shaped my understanding of the world, and in a very profound way, is the fact that I'm raised by a Chinese widow in a very patriarchal society, and that. Gave me a lot of firsthand experience in how many these small but still significant indignities and insecurities there are in terms of a woman moving through the world, both physically and also figuratively in terms of pursuing a career. Yeah, you say something very interesting about how you came to science, and you say that you scienced. Your way out of limited circumstances. Tell me about that—that that sense of science as a, a path out of adversity, as you describe it. My situation is not unique in China. Growing up with very little、uh, material resources or with no political connections, academic excellence was the only pathway out. And I happen to be very fortunate in a sense. That I was very good at the system China devised to select "quote unquote" talent, so I was able to succeed "quote unquote" through the Chinese education system into an elite university, University of Science and Technology of China, where I did my undergraduate, and then later to the University of Chicago for my PhD. That brought me not just out of the limited circumstances of my upbringing. But also into a free country. It's so、yeah. complex, though, isn't it? Nothing is ever black and white. The history of science, recent history of science in China, has has been complex. I mean, scientists became one of the most persecuted groups in China under the Cultural 
revolution under Mao, and indeed the very university that you were at and that your father was at, had struggled to survive during the Cultural Revolution, hadn't it? Yes. So I would rephrase this a bit, that I don't think this was an isolated period in Chinese history or in the history of science across the world, that nature has no political ideology. But science, as a human endeavor, and in more recent past century or so, as a primarily government-funded human endeavor, is inherently political. And in China, or in the land that we call China today across millennia, pre-modern science was predominantly funded by the imperial court, the results of which are interpreted for imperial legitimacy, including like pre-modern astrophysics and cosmology in China. After the communist regime took power, science in Mao's China developed um, largely following the Soviet model, where science that's directly connected with national defense were being prioritized. So the so-called two bombs and one star, Liang Dan Yixing, which referred to the atomic bomb, the ballistic missile, and the man-made satellite. And so the nuclear and space programs were the prioritized subjects in, among science in Mao's China. Well, science was seen as as, a, as, as effectively counter-revolutionary. What happened to scientists during that time? And, and some of these scientists became your professors at the University of Science and Technology in China. And indeed, one of China's most famous scientists, an astrophysicist who was a vice president, executive vice president of your university. He has an incredible story of exile. He's no longer alive. But in some sense... As a physicist, you have followed in his footsteps. I'm very humbled uh, for you to, to say <laughs> that. I, I I can't possibly claim that for myself. But the person you are referring to um, was Professor Fang Lijiu. So he was heavily criticized for publishing papers on modern cosmology because it was considered contrary to Marxist ideology. He withstood the political pressure and continued working on astrophysics and cosmology through the 1970s to the early 1980s. And during the 1980s, he became a tireless advocate for freedom and democracy and political reform in China. That led to him being labeled the biggest black hand behind the Tiananmen protests in 1989. So after the tanks rolled in to the streets of Beijing, he and his wife sought refuge at the U.S. Embassy in Beijing for 13 months until the negotiations between the highest levels of both the U.S. and Chinese governments um, allowed he and his wife to leave. And he died in just 2012. What does his legacy mean to you personally? Fang Lijiu did not become a dissident because he was a physicist. He was a dissident who happened to be a physicist. And Fan showed an example of how a Chinese scientist, but more importantly, a Chinese individual, can live their conscience and adhere to and advocate for these universal values that are not Western values, but are truly as universal and as fundamental as a particle physicist, I would say, as the fundamental laws that bind us and our shared cosmological history. You've been thinking very deeply about this nexus between 
science and politics and the state and expressed some scepticism about China's quest to position itself as a, a global leader in science. And you've gone one step further to describe China as using science essentially as a, a political weapon. Um, yes. So I think I, I think the most uh, acute and the most alarming example right now is the high-tech ethnic cleansing that the Chinese government is conducting in the northwestern region of Xinjiang towards over 10 million um, mostly ethnic Muslim minorities of Uyghur or mostly Uyghur and also Kazakhi ethnicity. And what the Chinese government has done is turning a, a region into a 21st century police state with massive collection of biometric data with surveillance of both in facial recognition, voice recognition, biometric tracking, including DNA, including ones just uh, facial and physical features. And there are also uh, these reported cases of individuals being asked to walk uh, in front of a camera and capture their gait, etc. That is just what exists in the everyday life. And outside of that, there is over 1 million, up to 3 million Muslim minorities being held in concentration camps in the northwestern region of Xinjiang today. So it is a, a very alarming case. And there are also artificial intelligence and these uh, new techniques being used to develop essentially what is an ethnic apartheid to facilitate or enforce state control. These are Chinese examples, but the lesson should not just be applicable to China, but really should be a warning to the global community. And the solution has to be global and not just directed to or limited to the Chinese government itself. So how might that be for Chinese scientists that wrestle between those passionate about the open-minded quest to pursue scientific research, and then alongside that, to do that within the context of a, an authoritarian state where you are obligated as a scientist to serve that state. Yes, Chinese scientists have their agency, have their conscience and moral compass. But because of the nature of the political system of the authoritarian state, it would be extremely difficult, if not outright impossible, for a Chinese scientist to object to it. And they do not have the freedom to refuse to contribute um, their scientific work into a defense purpose or surveillance purpose. Mm, I have a lot of empathy for them. A lot mm. of them are, are my, if not directly, my professors because I work in fundamental science, but are broadly speaking colleagues of mine. And their, their lack of ability to dissent does not equate unequivocal approval of the Chinese government's actions. And a lot of cases, the Chinese scientists also see their work in basic research, quote unquote, as some kind of a refuge mm -hmm. from these political tensions and more complex ethical issues. And, and I'm very empathetic of it. But on the other hand, it's also true that in an authoritarian state, most individuals who work in an authoritarian state are not only victims of state oppression, but also complicit and directly or indirectly contribute to their own oppression. And this kind of um, deeply tragic 
but still factual duality is is just a state of reality of living in an authoritarian state. Which makes the decision that you took as a young woman to travel to America to do your graduate studies very interesting. And, and this wasn't just, well, you know, to have an exciting adventure. It, it strikes me that you had a very clear vision about what you were doing. Is that the case? Well, I was uh, I was 19 when I when I left China for graduate school in the US. So I think um, for a 19 year old, but of course it was limited by by my age and experience <laughs> and understanding of the world. Yeah, so I, I told my, my, my family back in China, I was telling them that I'm going to the United States, not just to pursue a scientific degree, but to live in a free country. And and so that that was really there was a duality in in my choice that it was not just scientific, but it was also myself voting with my feet in, in choosing a liberal democracy over an authoritarian state. And I say this, that there is no, nothing particularly noble about this choice. I'm very privileged in the educational opportunities I've been given. And I, there are also other personal circumstances that made it uh, easier for me to just leave my my country of birth and upbringing for a new life of freedom. But for many of my colleagues who would not be able to leave China for various personal and professional reasons, it doesn't mean that they don't believe in fundamental values of freedom mm. and human rights. And so I think this is really a case where o an audience should view people living in authoritarian states not as these abstract figures, but really as, as full human beings mm. with agency and with conscience, but also recognize the overarching power dynamic of, of state oppression and state power and how that limits individual choices and forces conscientious individuals into violations of their individual conscience into some form of complicity. So so I also want to, to stress that it's a personal choice I made. Yes. And I'm still uh, coming to terms with it, of its implications and how that shapes my worldview well, and how I should not apply moral relativism for the ones who didn't make the same choice. That's a profound uh, observation to make. And I mean, you were born just months after the Tiananmen Square massacre. And yes. you consider yourself very much a child of Tiananmen. Yes. And this is interesting because I did not know what happened at Tiananmen until I've left China. But still, my life and my education was shaped by that tragic event and its aftermath. The troops have been firing indiscriminately, but still there are thousands of people on the streets who will not move back. The bicycle rickshaws scooped up the injured. Others were shunted onto bikes and peddled to hospital. Many were carried away by frantic local residents. There was confusion and despair among those who could hardly credit that their own army was firing wildly at them. Many were bystanders. One particular example was the Chinese government issued and launched this patriotic education campaign in 1991 in response to the 
challenge of the communist government's legitimacy after Tiananmen crackdowns and also uh, dating back after the Mao era disasters. And so the education I received, I started elementary school in 1994, which was the year that the government launched this uh, more detailed outline for patriotic education, uh, was, was really following the government's narrative of this China as a historically besieged nation after 100 years of humiliation since the Opium Wars and how the Communist Party is the country's savior, heroic savior, and one and only true guardian. And that kind of extreme calling of collective memory, this kind of uh, censorship, distortion of national and international history, it is profound for the younger generation of Chinese, uh, my age or younger, and also for Chinese society at large. Was strung out facing a huge crowd. The air was filled with shouts of fascists, stop killing. We were in the line facing the troops. They were about 250 yards away. Young people were singing the Internationale to a background of gunfire. You describe your extraordinary experience of only finding out as a, a young adult in America at the University of Chicago from a young American colleague of yours or a co-student about Tank Man, the man who so stood, think, uh, stood in front of that line of tanks, that incredible image. And that must have been incredibly profound for you. Yes. When I left China, I was not completely oblivious to the incident of, of Tiananmen. It's not difficult to get a sense of what is forbidden by just observing the contours of censorship and occasionally stumbling upon it. A lot of things that, that were censored, only people become aware of it because of the censorship itself. But mm. it just leaves this massive void of there is something deeply tragic and unspeakable. And, and that, that void also festers a lot of disinformation, which is true. And so I only found out the truth about Tiananmen, including the details and also the scale of the crackdown and the casualties after I came to the U.S. when Tank Man was brought up almost just like randomly um, at a conversation with some of my American classmates after I came to Chicago. What was that like for you? I think I think I was I was embarrassed and I was ashamed. I had no illusions about the authoritarian nature of the Chinese state, but I still felt a sense of. I felt that my government had denied me access to my own history, and and that that is a sense of 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 profound guilt and betrayal. You have found your voice, though, uh, and I'm interested in that decision of yours to, uh, here you are, a particle physicist, doing your postdoctorate studies in America, but now also writing these really vivid and powerful and personal opinion pieces for Foreign Affairs magazine and China File, and I think you've written for Teen Vogue and MIT Technology Review, all sorts of publications. You've been interviewed by The New York Times, by NPR, what triggered you to, in a, in a sense, find this politicised voice of yours? Um, this is a question that I actually ask myself very often. <laughs> it must come with risks in terms of your capacity to return to China. It does, but, but living itself is not risk-free. 
So, so I think I think that's um, that that's what I, I I tell tell myself that the existence of risks is not enough of an excuse to not live and not live one's truth. And I'm still a, a very young, not necessarily in age, but a very, very young new writer. And I'm still trying to come to terms with what it means to write, what it means to have a voice, a platform, and what is the best way to use it. What I wanted to say, I don't see them being written as a young Chinese woman, as a scientist, as an immigrant, these kinds of juxtapositions of identities is relatively unique. And and that's something I feel deserves a space to be told. I think one thing I am very cognizant about is as a young Chinese woman born under one-child policy, there were tens of millions of young Chinese girls who were never born because of their gender. And then if we look back at thousands of years of Chinese history, there were like hundreds of millions of Chinese women who were denied access to literacy and hence denied the ability to write their own history and have their own place in the recorded history because of their gender. So I think it, it almost sounds self-aggrandizing for me to say it, but but because I'm a particle physicist and I always think on a, a, a larger historical or cosmological <laughs> scale. So so I do feel that it's a great privilege and and also a great responsibility as a as a young Chinese female writer a scientist by profession, how I use my voice and the the people I want to write about. I'm particularly interested in writing the stories of Chinese women, partly because of my upbringing. Yes, I mean, one line that you write is, I am the great granddaughter of women with bound feet for whom learning to read was a revolutionary act. I am a particle physicist working on the most powerful particle accelerator in the world. And that contrast is so striking when you when you describe that, that uh, relationship between the present and the past. I'm curious to know, in the last few minutes that we've got together, you know, the Chinese government is running a, a very well-known and, and patriotic thousand talent plan, really focused on pulling back to China many of the great talents that have kind of spread around the world. Would you be tempted to head back if the Chinese government sought to recruit you with a lucrative offer under the Thousand Talent Plan? No, I do not believe in subjecting my profession and my life to an authoritarian government. And and that is just a conscientious objection. For, for my colleagues, some of whom who have indeed returned to China under the Thousand Talent Plan or other types of talent recruitment plans, it's, it's not a, a discount on their personal morality or conscience. And they have their own professional or personal reasons to pursue um, their career paths. And so I think this is really a case where people... Um, or an audience should view people living in authoritarian states not as these abstract figures, but really as as full human beings mm. with agency and with conscience. There are reports now that Chinese scientists, often very senior scientists, 
are being targeted uh, being investigated by the FBI. Some are even losing their jobs at major American scientific institutions. And I wonder if you could give us a sense of what that is like at the moment in America, being a Chinese scientist. This is a really current and complex issue. The two larger structural forces on both sides of the Pacific, on one hand is the Chinese government's abuses of a liberal democratic system and violations of intellectual property and sometimes it's encouragement or outright facilitating of industrial espionage or other actions that does violate international rules and norms, if not directly harming other countries' national security. And the FBI director, Christopher Sway, is quoted as this year saying, China has pioneered a societal approach to stealing innovation, that China seems determined to steal its way up the economic ladder at our expense. Um, so, so there's that intellectual property rights angle on this, but there's also concern that there's racial profiling happening. Yes, I would refrain from using China as the subject. So mm. it's really the Chinese government that has conducted a lot of these abuses. And the Chinese government has its overseas political influence and campaigns that primarily oppresses and targets people of Chinese ethnicity and descent. So this is really an, an action of political oppression from an authoritarian government. That's the first, the, the first broader structural force. On the other side of the Pacific, the broader structural force is that the United States is founded as a white supremacist patriarchy. And there is this undercurrent of racism and xenophobia that is part of this country's original sin. And it's still manifested in a lot of the current um, political issues and societal issues in America today. There are indeed individual cases where they may the, the individual offender may not be of Chinese ethnicity at all, who violated some rules and of either uh, intellectual property or, or some other government funding agency regulations, and and the individual uh, bad behavior should be investigated and prosecuted according to a rule of law, and and that is just, but an individual behavior should not be used to generalize a broader ethnicity, a people, because the Chi otherwise the Chinese people or people of Chinese ethnicity who live in the U.S. today are being double victimized by these two larger structural forces. I can imagine that's having a profound impact, a personal impact for some scientists. Many, many Chinese scientists or scientists of Chinese heritage work in, in labs across America. So I think this is really forcing scientists of Chinese ethnicity working overseas to choose a loyalty when science should not be in ownership of a state to start with. You have an incredible story and I'm so grateful to you for, for joining us on the program this week. And I can't wait to hear what happens to your scientific career. It's, it's going to be exciting. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Natasha. Particle physicist and writer Dr. Yang Yang Chang, my guest this week here on Science Friction. I'm Natasha Mitchell. The show is produced by me and Jane Lee. And talk to me on Twitter. Oh, yeah, do at Natasha Mitchell. And next week, the apocalypse is coming to Science Friction. You'd better be ready. Listener.
You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.